Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Father, we come to you tonight in need of your presence and in need of your work in our hearts. We come to you tonight, every one of us, uh, with different pressure and stress that has brought us to this place. And we trust that you've given us your word to be able to speak into our hearts and to guide our paths. And we trust that your word will meet us in our lives and in our circumstances. And so we lift this time to you. We pray that you would speak your truth. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. And so we lift this time up to you and ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, church, we have been in a series through the book of Acts. We're in the third section of a series in the book of Acts, and through the series, this actually goes back over a year now. And so last January, we started, and we've, kind of, we've broken Acts into four sections, and so it's like four mini-series through the same book. The book of Acts is, is the story of the early church and the Acts of the Apostles as the Word of God spread throughout, really, the known world at the time. And so within this, we've had some other things peppered in, but, but in general, we've stuck to the book of Acts. And we saw right at the beginning that Jesus, right before his ascension into heaven, as after he had resurrected from the dead and he was on earth, eyewitnesses claimed that Jesus was raised on earth for 40 days and appeared to more than 500 people. And so the account we have at the beginning of Acts as he's with his disciples is that Jesus called his disciples to be his witnesses. He said, the Holy Spirit will come on you in power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in the surrounding region, Judea and Samaria, and then where, church? To the ends of the earth. All right, um, I'm going to keep you with me a little bit better than that. So um, some of you were very eager, but my kids are here, and they were eager, which almost never happens to me. It's a moment that warmed my heart. Um, so um, so that the, the Spirit would descend on Jesus' followers, and they, and they were called to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and... All right, to the ends of the earth. Now, in that, what we saw progress through Acts, and we've been kind of following that journey. And so the first series that we did in Acts was called Beginnings. It looked at the first seven chapters of the book of Acts and looked at the descent of the Spirit and the beginning of God's work, particularly in Jerusalem. And in that, we saw the Apostle Peter highlighted and the Word of God taking root in the people's hearts in the city of Jerusalem. Then the second section we took on was, was called The Word Spreads, as we looked at Acts chapters 8 through 12. That looked at God's work in the surrounding region, through Philip and through Peter's ministry to Cornelius, and as we saw, Ethiopian eunuch was saved, and, we, and so God's Word was grabbing a hold of the region, and Philip's work, it went to the Samaritans, and it was spreading to the Gentiles, and so that was the second section of the book of Acts we looked at. Well, now we're in the third section of this same book looking at God's word as it continued to spread to the nations. And so now we're beginning to see that calling realized. 
from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so over the last several weeks, and this year we have looked at the Apostle Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, and they, as they went um, across into Cyprus and into modern-day Turkey, or Asia Minor at the time, and were preaching the gospel and planting churches um, last week that we saw the Jerusalem Council as they were gathered together in a watershed moment for the church. And today we continue on in Acts 15 and see the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. And in this, I'm continually challenged and amazed by the way the Spirit of God will meet us and minister to us, even in the planning of a sermon series. And I believe today's text is here for us. And it's timely and it's helpful, and so we will lean in together to see that at the beginning of the second missionary journey, things did not go as they hoped they would go, and still God was able to work. This is what we have in Acts chapter 15. If you have a Bible, you can open it up there with me. We'll read Acts chapter 15, verse 36 through 16, 5 tonight. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we've proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought, it be thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone, on, gone with them to the work. And so there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went on through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places." For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so, a little bit of background here for us to understand what's going on in this text. Again, the, this is, so timeline-wise, this is in A.D. 49 or 50, right around that change of year in, in 50 A.D. And so this is the second missionary journey, and Paul and Barnabas had, had come out of Jeru the Jerusalem Council and were back in Antioch, their sending church. And the Jerusalem Council was a big win for these guys because they had gone through Cyprus and all these cities, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, that were just named. They went through these cities planting churches, and they came back to Antioch, and there was a controversy about the nature of the church and how Jewish the church was going to be and how, the, how reliant the church was going to be on Old Testament law. And so it came into a, a council that we looked at last week where in Jerusalem, the apostles and the elders of the Jerusalem church were all called together to evaluate this question of, is circumcision going to be required of the Gentiles? And really it was a question of, is the Mosaic law going to be imposed across the board, or has it been, is, are we out from underneath that law? And how Jewish is the church required to look culturally? And so they came out, they established doctrinal unity that circumcision wasn't going to be required. And Paul and Barnabas head back to Antioch together with a big win. They continued teaching together. They agreed to return to the churches that they had planted. And then we read in the text that there was a sharp disagreement with them. 
Remember, this is Barnabas. His, his, that's his nickname. It means the son of encouragement. Like, how do you get in an argument with that guy? And it's the Apostle Paul. Like, I think most of us would be scared to get in an argument with the Apostle Paul. And by looks of it, he was a pretty intimidating guy to have come after you in arguments, if his letters are any sign of it. And I think we have a tendency to read the letters that Paul wrote, and because he wrote 13 letters that are in our New Testaments, which is almost half the books of our New Testament, I I know that for me, I can have a tendency to think, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to go and find Paul so I can ask him this question, and then I forget that he was just a guy. He wasn't God, but he wrote what God used as his word, and so I believe that everything we have from Paul is God's word given to us, inerrant and inspired and breathed out by God, but I think there's also probably a reason we lost some of Paul's letters. (laughs) He was an errant, fallible man. And, you know, that's one of the questions that comes up on theological tests often is, is people are trying to, like, trap each other is, all right, what if we found 3 Corinthians? Well, first of all, it's unlikely to happen in 2,000 years of Christian history that we suddenly find a letter that's authentically Paul's, and we are convinced that that's archaeologically true. But if it happened, it's still not part of the canon. What we have is God's word given to us. And so there, Paul was fallible, and there was a disagreement that happened. And I think here we need to pay attention to the way that our author, Dr. Luke, talks about it, what he does and he doesn't say. We get a vision of what Paul wanted to do in ministry, what Barnabas wanted to do in ministry. They, they came to a point where they weren't headed the same direction. Paul goes on, and he, Barnabas takes Mark with him. We know that Mark is Barnabas' cousin. We read about that in the book of Colossians in chapter 4. So they were cousins with each other, and we know Barnabas was from Cyprus. And so he went back to the place that he knew, and he brought his cousin with him. Um, Paul didn't want to take that guy with them again, and, and so he took Silas. Silas was a guy that was sent from Jerusalem with Paul and Barnabas to deliver the news, a guy that was, that was culturally, ethnically Jewish that helped them to deliver that news and show unity. And so Paul said, all right, I'm taking you, and then he makes sure to balance out his team by putting Timothy on the team. But look at what happened to Timothy. Do you see what Paul made him do? Paul went up against the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem to say, we should not require people to be circumcised. Then he has Timothy, whose mother was Jewish, but whose father was Greek, and he says, Timothy, I want you to come and join my ministry in this mission, but if you're going to join me, you've got to get circumcised. Why? Why would he have done that? Doesn't that seem contradictory, the arguments he made? I don't know if this was part of the disagreement between them. We don't know much of the detail, but I think what we see is that Paul wanted a missional flexibility on his team to be able to reach out both to Jews and to Gentiles, and so he didn't want Timothy's Gentile father to be a reason for people to reject the gospel from him. And so freedoms have been given to us to be laid down for the advance of the gospel. But whatever the case, what we see in what Luke presents for us here is an objective reality that Paul and Barnabas couldn't agree. And there's no sin mentioned. It doesn't say that one of them was in the wrong or that there's sides taken or blame placed. And, and it does, it says it's, it's objective and clear, but there's not a lot of detail. Um, it's also not celebrated. And I think some commentators have tried to slide that way of saying, saying look, this was a multiplication of gospel ministry because, because they went different directions and good fruit happened and churches were strengthened and this was a good thing. And I don't... I don't think that's the vibe of the text either. I think it's listed as a sad moment that God was able to work in spite of. 
And so Paul took Silas with him. And the, the journey that we get, we'll put some maps back up again tonight. Um, the journey that we get is that um, from Antioch, uh, Barnabas and Mark went down to Cyprus. And Paul and Silas continued on up into, again, what is modern-day Turkey. And then the next map will show us that they went on to these other cities. These are all the cities that they had planted churches in on the first missionary journey. And Paul was going back to them to let them know about the decision that came in Jerusalem. And in the midst of it, the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And so, this is an important text for us, church. It's an important one because it can be jarring in our own lives when disagreement comes into play. And every one of us experiences it. Every one of us, if we're in relationship with other human beings, has moment, have moments when friction comes in. And, and, partic- and it's particularly jarring when, when people around us that we're close to are in disagreement. And so this passage is important to us because it, it, because it shows us a path that we can walk. We can have a tendency to want to make quick solutions and determinations and, and think that things are less tangled up than they are, and, and we can see it over and over and over again when Christians take good gospel concepts and turn them into ultimates and ultimatums. And the New Testament gives a lot of input on relational conflict. It's all over the New Testament. Jesus taught on it. It's in many of the New Testament letters, and do you know why that is? Because the New Testament churches were made up of people from a variety of cultures and backgrounds and places that all came together, natural enemies that were made family. And when any group is filled with people who, are, who each have their own baggage and sin, there will be division and conflict. The church, we say all the time that the church is a family, and family is crazy. Amen? <laughs> you all have families, right? And especially the bigger your family is, I mean, do any of you have big families? The bigger your family gets, the more aunts and uncles and cousins you have, the more likelihood that things are crazy in your family, and that there are people that you just wonder, like, how, how are we together in this? Like, we have the same last name. Can I add, like, an E in there or something? Just <laughs> um, a true story, just a little aside. So my family, I, I introduced myself earlier. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Bill Rydell. If you look at my last name and any of you have any exposure to or or understanding of the German language, you might recognize that last name, or if you just like to drink wine. Um, There's a wine glass company from Austria called Riedel Crystal, and so we have wine glasses with our name laser inscribed on them, but we didn't see any of the money from that company. Um, (laughs) I don't know where that money is, but it's not here in the States. So it didn't come to, come to the immigrants from who came over. So, but my, we say it Rydell instead of Riedel because my grandpa, when he was a little boy, really didn't like his dad, and he had like a second grade teacher that said, you're pronouncing your name wrong, it should be said Rydell. And so as a way to distance himself from his father, he changed the way he pronounced his name, and all of, it, my dad is one of seven children, and all of us and all of our cousins say it Rydell. I have cousins on the other side of the family still that say it Riedel. And so we are a family divided by pronunciation of a German diphthong. Um, family's crazy. And, we distance, and, and so in family, though, there are things that we walk through that we may not if people weren't related to us. But the church is a tighter bond than blood because we are the blood-bought family of God. It's still hard sometimes, though. Now, to be clear on one thing here, before we get, what, what I want to do is spend time tonight talking about how do we take on and how do we walk through and deal with relational conflict together? 
What does the New Testament teach us on how to deal with that? And I think because it, it teaches a lot, and so tonight we're going to kind of take a survey of that. To be clear on this, though, I think it's really important to point out that John Mark and Paul have some kind of reconciliation that happens by the end of Paul's ministry. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, this same Timothy that's mentioned, he says to him, this is one of the last letters Paul wrote in his life, send Mark to me because he's useful to my ministry. And so there was time that, that it took, but Paul and Barnabas didn't have a hatred for each other. They did go different directions. So let's look at this. How do, as we open up the New Testament together, how do we handle personal sin that comes in? What do you do if a person sins against you? Well, Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 18. This is a passage that you may be familiar with, you may not, but in Matthew 18, um, Jesus said this. He said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. And so here, Jesus is dealing with the issue of what do we do when there's actual sin interpersonally between two individuals. And so it's not here a, an issue of offense. It's not just somebody looked at you sideways or you took something too personally. This is an issue of sin. Romans 14 talks about gray area offense more clearly. But a sin is an outward action that we can observe that's in violation of God's word that we can time and date stamp and show where it violates scripture. Jesus says if there's sin in between two people, what is the first step? Go to the person. There's so much that would change in a church family if we faithfully followed what Jesus clearly prescribes. And go to them. We don't go to others to, make them, to talk to them about what to do because we have a word for that when we talk to everyone except the person that offended us. That word is gossip. And, and so if they repent, though, you've gained a brother or sister. And if they don't, then there's a next step to bring somebody in with you. So a couple of things on this. First of all, it's really important for us that we all realize exactly how fragile the people around us are. None of us likes to project that. None of us came in tonight thinking, you know what? I really hope somebody sees exactly how weak and vulnerable and hurting I am. I hope somebody can find exactly the right chink in my armor so that they can hit that pressure point and I can just collapse. And so we like to project a level of strength, that we have it together, that we, that we don't need other people, that, we're, that we don't have vulnerabilities because it's safer to project those things. And I had a friend one time that, said, said, um, that talked about horses, and it's something I never realized because I haven't spent a lot of time around horses, maybe some of you have. Um, Horses are giant creatures, unless it's little Sebastian. Um, <laughs> giant creatures, majestic creatures, strong creatures, especially when you get into like thoroughbreds or even farm horses or war horses, like just incredible, majestic creatures. And yet, horses are animals of prey. And so I've been told that as you approach a horse, you have to be careful and, and you have to work to convince the horse that you're not there to kill it, as giant and majestic as it is. That's the way we need to approach each other. 
Our posture, if in, out of kindness and love for each other, ought to always be to just try to be, convince each other off the, off the start, I'm, I'm not here to kill you. I'm here to help. And in that, as we enter into conflict with each other, as, thing come, as things come up, even if you're the one who has been sinned against, I think even there, if we take a posture of, of that kind of gentleness and humility and look at opportunities to speak into a brother or sister's life, not as a way to get our, our own rights out of a conflict, but instead as an opportunity to speak God's word and breathe life and courage into a brother or sister in need, it would change everything in the way that we approach each other. And that's what we need as we come alongside of each other, is to breathe courage into each other. Because undoubtedly, what we don't realize when we look at each other when we've been hurt is exactly how weak and needy the other one is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, recognized the difficulties of life and community, but one of the things he said that has stuck with me is that, that when we are feeling weak and hurt, that the Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain and his brother's is sure. And so as we enter into confrontation with each other, that is what should ring in our ears. And within that, even as we head into this, there are some things that it's okay to say when you've been hurt. And I think this is important as well. There's an article written by Paul Maxwell that was four things that it's okay to say when you're hurt. He said that those four things are, first, that it's okay when you've been hurt to say, I'm not ready. And sometimes it's wise to step back and detox from the hurt that's been caused. It's also okay at times to say, you're not ready particularly in instances of abuse. Um, it's some, and at times, especially in cases of abuse, forgiveness is not the same as trust. Trust takes time to rebuild, even if forgiveness has been extended, and relationships don't always stay the same. Now, this is true even in close proximity. So um, I've been married to Alyssa for coming up on 18 years now. 18 years of nothing but bliss. <laughs> um, and we have never fought. <laughs> Um, and that is a lie. Um, there, there are times when marriage is really, really hard. And there are conversations and times where we treat each other terribly and where we receive each other as enemies. Paul Miller says that an enemy is anyone who receives you consistently through a negative grid. My gosh, if that's the definition of an enemy, there are certainly days that I treat my own family as enemies where there's nothing they could say, nothing they could do that I'll hear rightly, and instead, everything that's said, I'm able to co create some false motive underneath and say, like, what, you know, is that sarcasm? I said I love you. <laughs> and we all do this, though. We can treat people as enemies, and in those instances, there are times, Alyssa and I have given each other carte blanche ability to tap each other out of conversations, with our kids, too. And so there are times when we'll see the other person emotionally rising to meet the level of our children, and, and as, as a co-parent, we'll come alongside and just a little tap on the shoulder and say, hey, tap out, take a step back, so that somebody can get some distance because they're not ready to continue to engage in a way that's thoughtful and helpful and constructive and wise. There are also times our kids could probably, can, could probably testify to this tonight because they're sitting in the front row that we've had like multiple rounds of tap out. It's like WWE, <laughs> like a tag team who's going into the ring next. <laughs> um, but we do that with each other too, that there's times when, and it's infuriating sometimes when we're in the middle of a discussion and I think things are going great because I like to debate and my wife, that is her like, that is the death of her. And I'm like, we're actually getting somewhere. And she'll say, hi, we need a break. 
I need some space. I'm not ready to go here, and I don't think you're ready. But out of love for each other, we've respected that with each other. Now, that doesn't mean it goes on forever. That means often when, what we do is we'll set, hey, when are we gonna, how long do we need? Do we, have, you know, do we need 15 minutes? Do we need a couple hours? Do we need a week? Do you, when are we going to set a time where we're going to come back and deal with this so that it gets dealt with? And so it's not running from it, but at times you do need a bit of a break. And so um, and within this, and sometimes another thing, the third thing is it's okay to say I need advice. But here's the key. The difference between advice and gossip is that going for advice means you're going to a source for advice and that you will follow that advice. What it doesn't mean, and what I, I know I can fall into this too, is when I go to somebody and get advice about a relational conflict and I don't like their advice, then I'm very prone to go, okay, who else can I text? <laughs> Until I get the answer I want. Often the advice that we don't want to hear is likely the advice we need most. And so it's okay to say I need to get some advice. It's also okay to say we need some help and to lean into community for support. Don't become isolated, and sometimes step-by-step counsel is needed. Next, the second step that Jesus gave us is bring along someone as a witness. It brings clarity. It can help to, make things, to, to lower the temperature and to bring clarity for discussion. But if it's real sin, then there may be a point where you even need to take it to the church for the good of the relationship and the individual because we're not made to do life alone. And so this could be asking your community group leader to help or getting pastors and elders involved as well. But I think this is important too because it shows that what Jesus is talking about is actual sin. Sin that's excommunicable in the church. And so there's, this is a pretty limited set of areas that I, this actually speaks to. And I think at times Matthew 18 gets used wrongly. This is for things like a major doctrinal error. Or Don Carson, a, a theologian, said there are three basic categories of excommunicable sin in the New Testament. Major doctrinal error, a major moral failure outside of God's, God's call to holiness, or third, persistent schismatic divisiveness in the community. And so this isn't offense and preference. This isn't just that you don't like somebody and that they require a little extra grace to be around. These are areas of sin that are addressed. And the whole goal of it is forgiveness and repentance. The idea is if your brother or sister listens to you, then you've gained them. And so relationship, you can build toward a restoration of friendship over time. And, and what I love about Matthew 18 is that Peter jumps in and does what he does so often and vocalizes what I think all of us feel in this is that Peter goes, said, uh, Lord, how often will I forgive my, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And he, I think the way I picture this is that Peter's like, I mean, how often? Like, I could do this like seven times. I don't know if I can. Like, I might have lowered that bar to like three. <laughs> like, three strikes and you're out is more, <laughs> it feels more reasonable. But Peter says, how about seven times? And Jesus responded to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. He went on to tell a parable about a servant who was forgiven much and wouldn't extend forgiveness. So we are called to forgive. Now listen, if you are confronted by somebody, I think it's important too to step back. It's, it's hard. None of us likes to be confronted. Again, similarly to like none of us walked in here tonight thinking, I hope somebody finds the chink in my armor that could bring me down and finds my weakness. I don't think any of us walked in here tonight going, you know what I would really love is if somebody pulls me aside to call me out. But 
if you're confronted by somebody in, that you're in community with, that is a friend, that is part of church family, be thankful. It takes courage to step into that space. I mean, unless it's somebody in your life that consistently is just a jerk. That's not what I mean. <laughs> like, oh, I'm so thankful that you're confronting me again today. Um, but it, really, if it's a friend that you trust, be thankful because it takes courage. And try to learn what you can. It may not all be true. So learn what you can and humbly listen. Don't get defensive and repent where you can. Charles Spurgeon, a preacher in Victorian London, said to a bunch of preachers that were training in the pastoral ministry, he said, and when someone comes to you and tells you that you've offended them or sinned against them, don't take it deeply and personally. You are far worse than they think. <laughs> and so I try to keep that in mind, too. If you have an offense against me that you'd like to talk about tonight, we can sit and talk, and I can tell you that I'm probably far worse than you think. And so it's, a, it's just a mentality of humility. Um, now, let's talk briefly about forgiveness and reconciliation, because I think these get confusing for us, too. Forgiveness is demanded of us, and forgiveness is releasing the cost of another person's sin. That's what it is. Forgiveness is always costly. Someone has to absorb it. When I was 16 years old, I had just gotten my driver's license, and we were at a hospital to visit my grandpa who was recovering from a stroke. And I remember all of the details of this place clearly because there was a moment that I'm going to tell you about that I will never forget. My parents flipped me the keys and said, hey, go get the family minivan, which was fairly new. It was like a year or two old at the time. So they go, okay. At that point, this green you know, Chrysler minivan was the coolest car I'd ever seen. And I threw it into reverse and hit the gas out of the parking spot and hit a light pole with the rear bumper. The light pole was about three feet behind the rear bumper. And I had left a dent into the rear bumper and the rear door in the shape of a square light pole. And I was like, I didn't who put a light pole there, like thinking this, is, this shouldn't have been, this is, this is someone else's fault, clearly. And I pulled around to the, to the overpass, or like the, the carport, thinking maybe they won't see it. <laughs> I'm just going to play it cool and sit in the driver's seat like nothing happened. And my dad saw it. <laughs> he, and he was not, he, he had words that I can't repeat in a sermon. Um, really was gentle and gracious, though. But there's a moment there where, you know, what happened? I was like, I don't know. There was a light pole, and I don't know how it got there. And they're like, how, how fast were you going? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and, um, but there was a reality in that moment that there was damage done to the car. And there was going to be a cost absorbed one way or another. Either I was going to have to pay for it, and I don't know how I would have done that at the time, or my dad was going to have to pay for it, maybe through insurance and whatever, to replace the rear door and the bumper and the plastic bumper and whatever else gets damaged whenever there's a seemingly minor accident. Or he would have to absorb the cost simply by having a damaged vehicle that he continued to drive. He chose to forgive me and that he didn't make me pay the cost of it, but there were consequences. I did not drive home that day. He said, give the keys back. You've lost some trust. And I think this is important for us. The foundation for forgiveness, the reason every Christian is called to forgive, is because we have been forgiven. 
This is the parable Jesus told in Matthew 18, is about servants who have been forgiven now extending that forgiveness. And, and for us to understand that, the real foundation for forgiveness, that it is the gospel, we have to understand the reality and the depth of our own sin first. And understand that we can acknowledge, none of us feels like, I mean, I don't think I have to convince you that we're sinful. I'm not going to waste the time on that tonight. We all know that we carry around our own guilt, and times we've even let ourselves down on the standards we hold. But what we don't often feel the weight of is that our sin is not just against another person or a community of people, that our sin is against a holy God. When we sin against another person, we are sinning against and violating someone who bears the image and likeness of a holy God. And, and it's not just devastating to us and to others. It is a rebellion against our creator. And so forgiveness is only offered to us one way, biblically, that God had to take on flesh and live life as a man on this earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, that he went to the cross for us, and, and he, in that, he paid the price for our sin. He absorbed the cost of the rebellion of humanity against the holy God, something that none of us could have paid. And through that, forgiveness has been extended to us, but the cost of it was the death of God's Son. And it's only if we begin to feel the weight of the gravity of our own sin and rebellion against God that we can ever hope to see the beauty and the glory of the forgiveness that's been extended to us so that we can become conduits of that grace and forgiveness to others. And so, as we sin, we're called to confess. But we're given this incredible promise in 1 John that if we confess our sin, that God is faithful and he is just, and he'll forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. It's a promise that's been given to us. And so um, in that, John Stott named three kinds of confession. He said secret sins need secret confession, that there are some times that, that sin is only known between us and God, and so take it to the Lord. Sins against others require private confessions, to go to them and say, I have sinned against you. Will you please forgive me? And there are times when there are sins against a community, and public confession is needed as well. And so forgiveness is extended by those who have been forgiven because we understand the cost of sin and what has come to us through Christ. That's different than reconciliation. Reconciliation, biblically, is that, that we stand on our own as enemies of God, hostile in our minds, against, positioned against God in our nature. This is in Colossians chapter 1. But he has made peace with us through Christ's death on the cross, and that is reconciliation. We are reconciled to God in the cross. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, we're called to be ministers and agents, ambassadors of this gospel of reconciliation and peace. Peacemakers don't always avoid conflict. Sometimes confrontation is necessary for peace to be extended. But this is also some of the hardest stuff of the Christian life. How do we forgive and reconcile with someone? And particularly, how do we forgive someone even when reconciliation seems impossible? These are things that I've wrestled with, and a few years ago I had a friend who's a pastor that that said to me and helped me through this, how do you deal with smoldering anger that builds within you against things that have been done to you when you know that a relationship isn't possible with that person? 
And he said this. He said, for me, it has been helpful to think about forgiveness as releasing the offender to the grace and the justice of God. I often find myself struggling with justice fantasies where I'm able to become the hand of God's justice in some way or another or longing for that to happen. I've learned a simple prayer that's not simple to pray. I pray that God would bless them in whatever way he sees fit, whether that's the blessing of judgment that puts an end to their iniquity or with the blessing of grace that humbles their heart and frees them from their captivity. This pastor said, I cannot and will not define what God does. That forces my heart back into a place of dependence and trust and humility, and it releases me from sitting in judgment. But I find it is a prayer that I must pray over and over and over and over again. And when reconciliation is impossible, the normal pathways of healing are blocked, and the sting of the offense isn't easily removed. And it may never be in this life, but that doesn't mean I have to allow the poison to infect the deep wound. And so we're called to love our enemies. Um, in Romans 12, we get a little bit of help from the Apostle Paul on what that looks like and what it means is he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You hear that? This is reconciliation at times. If is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For so, by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So there's a call here to love even our enemies and certainly each other. There's also a call to restoration in Christian community. Um, this is something that in 1 Corinthians 5, there's a situation described in the church in Corinth where a man is caught in sin, and it's sin. Paul says this is sin that even non-church folks, even the Gentiles would see as wrong. It was a man that was sleeping with his father's wife. And so Paul said, you've got to confront this and cast him out of the community. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I believe it's the same man that Paul is talking about when he, when he calls the church to forgive the sinner. He says, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me in some measure, but to put it to, too severely, but to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. That's why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are, are obedient in everything. Anyone who you forgive, I also forgive. If I've forgiven anything, it's been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And here's the reason to, that all confrontation is supposed to be geared toward forgiveness and, and restoration is so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs." And so there's this call of how things should go in forgiveness and confession and reconciliation in the church. There's also times when I think Matthew 18 doesn't apply. And so just briefly to run through a few of these, there are times when Matthew 18 is used almost, in, almost weaponized over people, like, well, you're not following it rightly. So there's times when it doesn't apply. We've already talked about it. It doesn't necessarily apply when it's not an issue of sin. It also doesn't apply when it's public sin. 
especially for leaders. Remember, we've talked about how Paul confronted Peter to his face in public because Peter was causing a division in the Antioch church between the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul said, you are out of step with the gospel. And so he confronted him publicly because it was a, a core doctrinal issue. It is, it, Matthew 18 doesn't apply with divisiveness in the church. And Paul told young Pastor Titus, he, uh, he said, warn a man once, warn him twice, and then have nothing to do with him. And what we see in Acts 15 is that Matthew 18 doesn't apply to ministry disagreement either. What we see in Paul and Barnabas, again, there's no sin listed or blame placed. It's a sharp directional disagreement. And we're prone to make those kinds of disagreements opportunities to get out our sin detectors and cause damage to the church and the mission of the gospel. But it's also possible to just head different directions. Within this, there's some patterns I want to call us to avoid and then a final solution tonight. And that's what we have left. So briefly, some things that we fall into that we need to be careful of, to be aware of, because we're all prone to them. The first is, church, let's commit to avoid gossip. Gossip is making private sin public. There's a pastor named Scott Sauls that says, gossip is just another form of pornography in which you undress someone and turn them into a thing in order to get a cheap thrill. It's tempting to gossip because it hotwires a relational connection with somebody else. It's a nugget of secret that they shouldn't know. And so it builds this instant intimacy. On the other side, let's commit to avoid cover-up, which is making public sin private. The devastating reports that came out of the Houston Chronicle last Sunday are evidence of exactly that, of terrible, gross sin that was kept private over time and absolutely should have been exposed. Third, let's avoid conflating forgiveness with trust and intimacy. Trust takes time to build. Again, even, even with close friendships, it takes time to rebuild over time. We can forgive quickly and work to build someone's trust back. Let's avoid, fourth, weaponizing forgiveness. It is right to drive to clarity in repentance and reconciliation, and it is wrong to withhold forgiveness to a repentant person and, and to be the arbiters to decide the genuineness of their heart. And so this happens, again, I can talk about in my own relationships, in the closest relationships I have, Alyssa and I have to talk regularly about, about pushing to clarity, coming to understanding together, but there's a point at which you have to just see someone and say, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to trust that your repentance is genuine. And this gets back to forgiveness and trust. Sometimes you need boundaries that are helpful to be able to rebuild trust over time. Finally, fifth, let's avoid becoming idol hunters in other people's hearts. You ever feel this tendency within you? Or have you ever experienced this tendency in somebody else? You read Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, and you go, hmm, now we can assess everyone as idols. Or you read the Enneagram and decide, now I know the motivations of your soul. And I'll call you out on all of those all the time. Oh, you're a four? What, am I not treating you as unique enough? <laughs> Every four in here just wilted. <laughs> What, you're at eight, it's just gonna, your control issues are coming out. You know, we weaponize things against each other and decide that we can decide the motives of someone's heart. Be careful, church. Be careful. We don't know what's going on in our own hearts most of the time, let alone in someone else's. 
In our, we have a discipline position paper that we've written, our elder team wrote years ago, and it said this, it says this in that, it says, old covenant pastoring hovers over people because they keep messing up. New covenant pastoring marvels at how God is at work in people. We become cheerleaders for what the Lord is doing in people's lives. We're, we're of course, to confront as one strategy among others, but only when, when someone else disobeys clear teaching of the Bible, chapter and verse. In general, for anyone to presume to pry into another person's heart and motives, scrutinizing their deeper problems is not the work of any of us until someone asks for such help. Unrequested diagnoses of inner motives cross a line. They never help anyone, not until they ask for it first. And so let's treat each other carefully. In all of this, what we are called to is to put on love. It's really an issue of love and what all Christians are called to because of the love that's been shown to us. And so 1 Corinthians 13, Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth, that this is what it looks like to love each other. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is what it looks like to love each other well. It looks like bearing all things in a relationship, being able to to endure alongside someone, believing all things and hoping all things, I think were probably the most confusing for me for the longest time in this passage. It was just a couple of years ago that somebody helped me to unlock what that means, that believing all things and hoping all things is to do the hard work when we're offended of trying to think about what is the best possible motivation that person might have had and choose to believe that and be surprised by anything else. Imagine how our relationships with each other would transform with that kind of a posture. The only hope we have for this, by the way, because we don't fulfill that, do we? I can look at my own life and say, gosh, I don't know that I'm always kind. I do envy. I can be prone to boast. Definitely can be arrogant and rude. I do insist on my way sometimes. I do get irritable and resentful. Um, I do rejoice sometimes in the wrong things, and I don't want to bear all things. I don't want to believe all things. In fact, sometimes I spin into what is the worst possible motive and choose to believe that. I don't want to endure all things. Sometimes I just want to, want to run and hide. But we can trust that in Christ we've seen that God is more patient with us than we are with each other and with ourselves, that the kindness of God has been shown in Christ, and that's what draws us to repentance. That, that Christ laid down all things and didn't, take up his, and didn't take up his own glory, but laid it down so that we could be brought into his glory. He didn't insist on his own way, but followed the will of his Father. He wasn't irritable or resentful, but went willingly to the cross. He didn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but consistently called people to the truth. That he took on himself the weight of our sin and bore that for us. That he, that he believes all things in calling us into and reshaping the image and likeness of God within each one of us. And he hopes all things that we will be with him in glory. And it's not just a hope that's distant and, and ambiguous, but it's real and grounded in the resurrection. This is how we're called to fight for each other. And don't get too discouraged when things don't go the way that we want them to. 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, take your New Testament as it is. Look at the New Testament Christian. Look at the New Testament church, and you see it vibrant with spiritual life. And, of course, it is always life that tends to lead to excesses. There's no problem of discipline in a graveyard, and there's no problem very much in a formal church. The problems arise when there is life. So, church, there's a calling to us to live in real grace for ourselves and extend it to others, to celebrate Christian freedom, and then to realize, too, that what we see in Acts 15 is even when things are hard, even when we have questions and fears and doubts, and even when it leads to a severing of relationship for a season, that God can still work in our midst. There's hope for us. Again, I don't think Acts 15 celebrates that this was a good thing. I think it says this is a sad circumstance that shows that people can't get past things sometimes. But there's hope. The Word of God continued to advance. Churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Let's pray. Father, would you help us and meet us here tonight? Some of us are dealing with real pain and real hurt, real relationships that have been damaged in hard ways. And I pray that you would give hope and even a glimmer of reconciliation and peace tonight. I pray specifically for those that are here that have been abused and are struggling through hearing a message like this and wondering what this implies or how this applies to the situation in their past that is so deeply painful. I pray there that you would meet and bring, meet them and bring comfort, that you would bring healing and give a confidence and trust that, that forgiveness is letting you be the judge, but that it doesn't mean reinserting themselves into an abusive situation. I pray that you would move in our church to bring the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That you would help us to approach each other with grace and kindness and gentleness and love, hoping all things and believing all things. I pray that you would start the, that work in each of our hearts as individuals, even tonight. And thank you that your word doesn't shy away from real life, but that it meets us, that it helps us, that it brings clarity for us. Would you give us hearts that will trust what your word has for us? And so we're grateful for the time to open it together tonight, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.